services now have to be much, much better. Otherwise, they'll lose your users, right? If you're not delivering value, consumers are saying, hey, I'm not going to pay you for something I'm not using, and they'll turn off. I think the, the businesses have understood that now. And so you're just getting a much, much higher quality of subscription offerings. Welcome to Subscriptions Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. With me today is Eric Crowley, who is a partner at GP Bullhound. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Awesome. For the listeners that don't know, I mean, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about GP. First off, hello, everyone. So my name is, is Nick Fenton, is Eric Crowley. I'm a partner here with GP Bullhound. We're a tech investment bank headquartered out of London. Got nine offices around the globe, over 200 employees. And then we serve as a tech investment bank for technology companies across the globe. And so we help companies graduate to the next level by raising capital. Or if the founders or investors are looking to sell, we help them exit through an M&A process. And then my background, I'm actually originally from Ohio. Started my career uh, driving a truck for Cintas. So things have changed. And then got my MBA at the University of Chicago and then moved gradually westward. Started my career at Lazard doing M&A and restructuring. And then became lead of finance at a company called eSpark Learning, which is an educational SaaS business. That was actually my first foray into tech was as an operator. And then joined GP Bullhound about five years ago and then started launching this consumer subscription practice in 2018. So it's been a fantastic ride. And you know where we kind of sit in the marketplace now is we try to help middle market companies 50, 50 million to a billion on their exits. And so we think we're the only investment bank out there with a dedicated consumer subscription software practice. Yeah, that that is pretty unique. I'm not aware of any others either. But what led you guys to, you know, carve off that as a practice? Was it just the amount of, of activity that was happening just in that space? Or you just kind of saw where it was headed? Yeah, it's definitely the second one. So we were fortunate enough to work with a company called All Trails, if anyone's familiar with a hiking app based in the Bay Area. So we helped them sell to Spectrum Equity in 2018. And so that was my first consumer subscription software deal. And the business was pretty small at the time, but we got a really great price for it. And it opened my eyes up into the power of like the consumer as a subscriber. Previously, you know, the going wisdom was that consumers churn. They're not sticky customers. They try stuff. They flip about, right? They never really use anything as a subscription long-term. And I was starting to see that start to shift, right? And consumers have been trained now by Netflix, by Spotify, some of these huge companies that it's okay to pay for a digital subscription. And so at the same time, entrepreneurs said, hey, previously I was building these businesses, monetizing with advertising. That's a three-way relationship, right? Between the user, the advertiser, and the entrepreneur. And now with subscriptions, right? It's much easier to make it a one-to-one relationship. It's the builder, the entrepreneur, and the consumer. And so the products kept getting better and better, faster and faster, right? The sensors now through laptops enable a lot more information to be ingested. And so consequently, these services, I don't even like to call them apps, get better, better, more customized, better tailored to your individual lifestyle. And so we just saw all these tailwinds coming and we said, hey, there's a big market out here. Let's go try to capture it. And so we we take a pretty granular thesis to understanding these businesses and have had a really successful history. We sell five to six a year. You know, one of the comments that you had in there, what you were saying made me think of it, but you believe that the consumer subscription space, direct to consumer, whatever you want to call it, it still has a long way to go. It's not where maybe some of the other, especially B2P SaaS, you know, has grown up that there's still a lot of opportunity there. I mean, what makes you say that? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. One, if you just think about the space that we're talking about, 
approximately 5 billion people have smartphones these days, right? They're all connected, every single one. And that's connected to the Apple store or the Google Play store, right? So effectively, you launch an app in the middle of Ohio, it could be bought by anyone, anywhere, instantly. Like that is a phenomenal market to be competing in. And so that's the, the macro TAM as I think about it. And then you kind of go down to the individual. Nick, if you look at your own phone, you flash back three or four years ago, how many things did you subscribe to? Maybe one, two, maybe three things, maybe. Now, but if you look at your phone, you've probably got five, six things. Might be something to handle your kids' stuff, maybe a fitness app, maybe something focused on, you know, like a type of food or a community you really enjoy. And I think these things are just getting better and better and better. And so my view is that while we may subscribe to more in the future, you know, it might be 10, each one of those will be adding a lot of value to your life, either driving savings, giving you more time to do your day, right? Automating some of the tasks you used to have to do on, like by yourself. And so my view is that we're still at the very early stages here. So I've been doing subscription for 20 years now and, and actually used to work for a company called Affinian Group. And a lot of products back in the days when I started with it were kind of the set and forget it subscription type products where it was, hey, let's go out, do a lot of marketing, get them to sign up. They may or may not use the product, but you know, it was kind of like this, you know, it'll fade into the background, forget that they ever even bought it. And of course, that model has very much flipped on its head. And now it's all about engagement, continuing to deliver value. Do you think part of that is, you're saying there's a lot of opportunity, consumers have become more comfortable with subscription. Part of that's because of probably past experiences with those types of things, the gym membership, and those types of subscriptions that you forget that you even bought. And now to your point, the apps themselves are better and the way that they can engage with their customers to better. So do you think it's both of those factors or how do you weight them and are there others? I think it's primarily the apps are better, right? It's so easy to unsubscribe to stuff now, like rules, privacy, it's everything, if you're doing it legally, has to have a real easy click to unsubscribe at the bottom of every email, right? If you go to like your iPhone or your Android phone, right? There's an entire tab that just says your subscriptions. So you could quickly go through and unsubscribe to every single thing in about 10 seconds, right? It's super easy. There's no friction. There's no phone calls to call someone and like getting out of a gym membership, right? You can only call between the hours of 8 and 9 p.m., you know, Chinese time, right? To get a hold of someone. Right. Just your subscriptions, they have to prove their value every time you use it or you will get the user will churn off, right? And so if the, consequently, the apps now, the services now have to be much, much better. Otherwise, they'll lose your users, right? If you're not delivering value, consumers are saying, hey, I'm not going to pay you for something I'm not, I'm not using. And they'll turn off, right? And I think, I think the, the businesses have understood that now. And so you're just getting a much, much higher quality of subscription offerings. You've been mentioned in App Source quite a few times there. And for, I think, a lot of subscription businesses, especially those that can sell directly to consumers and not have to go through the App Stores, they have this aversion to the App Stores for the approximately one-third of the revenue yeah. that they're taking off of the top. I mean, do you still feel that as the best channel for distribution is through the app stores? Or do you see more things going directly trying to connect with that customer? You definitely want to have playbooks for both, right? If you kind of say you have Stripe on one side and you have the app stores on the other side, Stripe is absolutely cheaper. But consumers are pretty well trained, right? If you look at any of Apple's 10Ks, right? To pay through the app store. It's safe. It's reliable. They can Apple pay. It. It's a double click, right? With your thumb, you're never entering credit card details. It's a pretty easy channel to get, you know, millions of subscribers pretty quickly. Now, I think a lot of these bigger businesses, once you're starting to get 20, 30 million in revenue, you're going to try to find a way to see if you could acquire or renew subscribers through the web, right? Offer them a little bit of a discount, try to shift their subscription over. It's pretty hard to do, but it is a strategy I see a lot of my clients do, right? Because you, you kind of nailed on this head, right? You get 30% more cash flow up front, 15% over the lifetime of that user. That's a lot of money. 
but I think, I think the pressure, this is my view and my view alone, like the pressure is starting to build on those app stores to be a little less of heavy toll takers and a little more open to the innovation to the entrepreneur. So, so I do think, you know, you've seen Google already start to lower that 30% down a little bit. I think Apple's going to start coming under some pressure here pretty soon. You know, there's the Epic lawsuit that's kind of winding its way through. So I think entrepreneurs should have a strategy for both channels and be competitive in both. I think a lot of listeners will be interested in that perspective because even outside of the revenue that they take, trying to go outside of them, you know, even work around that process. I mean, there's some horror stories out there about, you know, legal action and them threatening to take your app off of the store for even thinking about redirecting a customer. But you've seen some that have have had success doing that. Yeah, I mean, you've definitely had success. It's much easier to pick up a subscriber off the web first than try to push them out of the app store, right? It's just that's hands down easier. And so, I mean, I think people have some pretty interesting organic growth channels, right, to find those consumers outside the app store, right? There's a company called Movie, which is a Netflix competitor, right? And they have an entire website dedicated to a forum almost talking about uh, high-end movies, right? Stuff so you go to the Cannes Film Festival, you'd find movies like that. So it's very different from what's on Netflix. So they acquire their users through this website, right? So the users are coming to them through the browser, right? They're using it on their laptop, not on their phone. And then that's a much easier way to get someone to subscribe to movie. Then you go download the app to actually watch the, watch the films, right? So that's a really good strategy. People have been using that way. And then there's a, we talked about this in the 2020, 2021 report, but there's a lot of Chrome-based businesses out there. Speechify, Toucan are great examples where you're actually using the app, not in the app stores, but in the Chrome browser. And so those are big businesses kind of being built in plain sight. We've seen a couple of major acquisitions north of billions for those types of businesses. But then once again, you're doing it outside the app store, right? There's yeah. no need to download anything. So people are starting to customize their business models and delivery models to go around that. So how do you think Google and, and Apple are going to respond to that? Are they going to wait until it's a problem? Like they're, they're losing revenue because of it? Or do you think they're going to get in front of it? I think it depends, right? I think Google's trying to be first mover, right? And a little more friendly, right? So they've already kind of reduced the take rate. Apple's fighting it right? It's a pretty profitable piece of their business, right? I mean, it's hard to mm -hmm. see from the 10K exactly how much, but it's it's obviously in the billions part of the profit margins or in the billions of profit. So they have every intention probably of fighting until they don't have to. Well, so talk a little bit about, you know, we, I mentioned a second ago, the impact of iOS 15 and all of these privacy restrictions. What does that ultimately mean for these these apps or these subscription providers? Yeah, I mean, so IS15 and the ATT tracking or, you know, app transparency tracking or tracking transparency, excuse me, was, was a pretty big blow to a lot of apps in the space uh, that were doing paid marketing. And so there's a lot of businesses out there where they're kind of like ROAS players, right? They try to spend a buck and they get a buck 50 back on a, from subscriptions. And so that model broke and it broke in a pretty major way with iOS 15. And so I think short term, it, it hurt. It hurt a lot of my clients. It hurt a lot of, of companies I know out there longer term, I actually think it's a benefit. And this is a little bit of a contrary opinion. But I think the, the industry had gotten hooked on what I call like easy money. You put a buck 50 into Facebook, you get $3 in revenue back. That was not sustainable. Facebook ad prices started to go up, people were competing against each other. And you're all ultimately, we talk about this in the reports, but ultimately, you're acquiring users that aren't truly your users, right? You're building, you're building it to get someone onto the subscription and not subscribe for two years, right? So we kind of call it a dynamic of locals versus tourists. It's easy to get flashy metrics with tourists, right? You get tons of visits, lots of downloads, right? Maybe a month or two of subscription, but they churn. So you're playing the ROAS game. What I, my belief is that really successful, you know, $100 million revenue businesses, they optimize for the locals. People that are going to stay three, four, 
lifetimes as users. And so I think what this did is it, it forced entrepreneurs to, to have a mind shift, right? Instead of the short-term ROAS game, think a little more long-term, right? Find unique ways to organically acquire these customers, not through paid marketing, not through like using a profile on Facebook, but find them in forums, right? Do put posts out there, like find them on TikTok through your own accounts, right? Bring unique ways to market your brand and your company that finds like that really core niche of users. You might have slower downloads, your revenue growth might slow, but ultimately your LTV to CAC and I think your profitability will, will long-term benefit. That's interesting perspective. A little counterintuitive. I don't think too many people are thinking about it that way. It's a long-term. Well, I'm thinking like three, four years into the future. Yeah. It's absolutely right. causing pain now. I'd be lying to you if yeah. I said like it's not hurting people, <laughs> but, but yeah. I do think long-term it will be better for the industry because it just removes unnatural incentives to acquire users that aren't truly your users. So there's a term that has been floated around a lot lately, especially after we kind of saw the uptick in e-commerce through the pandemic, right? Everybody went online, enrolled in a whole bunch of things. E-commerce went through the roof. And now there's this, all this talk of subscription fatigue, right? Like I signed up for too many things and now I'm really looking at it, which certainly can be true in some sense. But of course, Netflix just reported their numbers and they just had the hockey stick from Q1, Q2 into, into Q3. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm extremely biased. Let's call it what it is, right? I operate in the industry. But I do think this whole subscription fatigue is, is a little bit of a misnomer. I think what they're, what they're really describing is you're not going to subscribe to five fitness apps. You just won't. You'll maybe have one, maybe two at the most, right? That you actually use and truly need to subscribe to, right? So I think what, I think what you end up having is you'll have a portfolio. Every person, in my opinion, will have a portfolio of apps that they use, right? And it's not going to be... They're not going to be duplicative. They're not going to be overlapping, right? You'll have one like Grammarly for kind of work. You use something like FitOn for like your workouts, right? You'll have something else like a Blinkist for your education, your podcast. So I do think the term subscription fatigue applies to, yeah, they're not everyone's going to have a Peloton, a Tonal, an Asana Rebel subscription. They're not, mm -hmm. but they will have something in my mm -hmm. opinion. When we look at customers or clients, we kind of look at your pre-pandemic subscription behavior, right? How are users using it pre-pandemic? We got peak pandemic, which is very different user behavior, right? Because everyone's lives were wildly different. Now you have mm -hmm. post-pandemic. And so now we're starting to see retention cohorts uh, kind of play out, especially through, you know, the beginning of 2022 through now, you'll see like, hey, truly, how are the users now using your product in what's called a somewhat normalized world of things are open? On that point, how normalized do you think we are now in terms of subscriber behavior? I think pretty far along, right? Like there's going to be some annual cohorts that, you know, maybe in certain, you know, I sit in San Francisco, right? Which had some of the, the more harsher lockdowns and people kind of responded accordingly where they subscribe to a lot of stuff, right? Entertainment, mm -hmm. fitness, stuff like that. But I mean, even in, in San Francisco, people are out and about and doing stuff, even if they're not in the office, their way of life has returned to normal on the weekends, on the evenings. And so I think we're in a pretty normal environment right now. Okay. I think that gives a lot of people some, some comfort to know that we may have leveled out. So talking about you're saying within a category, you're probably not going to subscribe to multiple things, but within like the world of streaming, you might be right. And the, how many you're going to subscribe to eh, it can vary from person to person or amount of time on your hands. What opportunities do you think exist in bundling and partnerships among these apps? I think you're going to see a lot, right? So if you look at like the Peloton exit case study, right, which they've had a rough run, but now they're trying to be a holistic opportunity to people to be focused on like mental fitness. Right, they're focusing on physical fitness. So I think you'll see stuff more people will partner for something like, hey, using something for work, use this at home and this at work. So I think you'll see a lot of bundling start to happen. I don't know if there'll be acquisitions, right, where you buy something that's adjacent to you and offer it under one brand name. 
But I do think people will say like, hey, you have these types of users. Why don't you give me access to user base to market? And then I'll give you access to my user base to market and we'll do some co-marketing. Right. Yeah. I think that'll be that'll be pretty successful. And I think the users yeah. will be open to it if there's a, a proven value add. So then what makes the right type of partnership in your mind there or the right bundle? Usually it means overlapping users, right? So if you take your the Venn diagram of like who uses okay. company A's product and who uses company yep. B's, ideally they're probably a similar profile. So because then you can effectively stack something on top of the other. So, you know, when you enroll in a new app through the app store, that process is pretty seamless. It's fairly frictionless because you've already got a credit card on file. The store already knows your demographic information. So enrollment's there pretty easy. Enrollment through an app or through a website can be much more difficult, right? Mm Wrong with some friction, putting in credit cards, even if you're using wallet services or something like that. So in the case of these partnerships and overlap, you know, everybody wants to own that consumer experience. I mean, everybody wants to be the one doing that billing and and controlling that experience. So for these to work, I mean, how can they really partner effective, partner together effectively to say, all right, hey, we're going to market with these guys over here, but here's an easy way to enroll in that product. If we really are partnering together, I almost think that's what the consumer is going to expect, that this should be easy to buy both. Yeah, they'll want a pretty seamless experience. You're just going to have people leaving the purchase cards like full. So my view is in a partnership, right? There's usually someone who's kind of the, the lead partner, right? And there's yeah. someone who's more of the junior partner, right? And I think that'll just okay. be flushed out, right? Neither one is worse. One takes more work. One takes a little less work. One may have a slightly bigger benefit. One may have a smaller benefit. And that's okay, right? Each entrepreneur, each builder will have to evaluate the pros and the cons and decide like, hey, this makes sense for us. So let's transition a little bit over to your extensive report, the Consumer Subscription Software Report, which is fantastic, by the way. I mean, so much insight in here, so much information packed onto every page in this 50-page report. Tell us a little bit about who's your audience here, like who are you building this for, and who are you trying to reach with it? Yeah, it's for all the listeners. It's You can just find the reports are free, right? We never charge for that. It's on gpbullhound.com under insights. So download and take a look. Let me know criticism and critiques. I'd love, love to hear feedback. Yes. I mean, when we started writing the report, Nick, it was kind of just a way for me to coalesce my thoughts, right? I just, I was like, Hey, I'm just trying to think through this ecosystem. What is going to, if this is going to be a real thing or is it a flash in the pan type thing? So it was initially just designed for me, right? I was like, Hey, is this real or not? Do I think it, do I think there's a real business this year, a real, you know, real industry here, kind of put it up online just to see what people thought. And man, we got a lot of feedback and it was people like, Hey, this is, I've never seen it like this. Like I even thought about this. So we, first we got and GP Bullhound has a pretty extensive list of subscribers that, that get our mailing list. And it's mostly entrepreneurs. So it's people building. And a lot of the builders got this. We're like, okay, wow. All right. I never thought about this metric or that metric. Before, yeah. before I was kind of focused on this, but you kind of put it in a SaaS terminology. Let me think about it that way. That was the first audience. But then pretty quickly, the second set of audience was investors who were kind of saying, hey, hold on a second. You're telling me that I can get SaaS-like cash flows but maybe pay you know five times revenue versus you know ten times revenue on a, a B2B SaaS company, and, and the answer is yeah. And so all of a sudden we had a lot of people coming in and saying, hey, we want to find these companies. Where's the next Chegg? Right? Where's the next Netflix? Where's the next Bumble? Like because there was also these success stories were starting to happen in the market, both public markets and private markets. And so people were saying like, hey, there's actually billions of op- dollars of opportunity here. Let's go invest there. So that was like that was the second piece. And so now you know I think we write. If you go through this, right, we target both of those audiences. So we really focus on the entrepreneur. We want them to have all the information at the fingertips that investors have, right? So sometimes as an entrepreneur, you don't have market information on KPIs, right? Like what's a good LTV to CAC? 
what are my competitors' gross margins look like? Like, what do investors care about for revenue growth rates? You just don't have that because your head's down, focused on your own thing. So there's some information asymmetry there where investors have, they'll see 50 companies a week, right? And the entrepreneur just sees their own company. And so we try to put a lot of that information on the report. So, hey, go look at it, take a look. And then for the investors, we do some pretty deep market mapping. So we really kind of think through like, how will these markets perform? Like, where are some attractive spaces to be investing in? And then those are those are the areas we kind of try to cater to the the investors' goals. Well, it's somewhat in the well, it is in the report. But talk to us about how you segment this whole space. I mean, you've got some different categories in there, but talk a little bit about those and kind of why you put them in those categories. Yeah, it's pretty hard to do, right? Like, because effectively yeah. you're trying to map consumer purchase behavior. Right, which and buyers can buy thousands, like consumers buy hundreds of things a week, right? And they sit across tons of different categories. So, so we just try to try to create a framework. And to be honest, like we're constantly expanding this framework. This is something that happens every year. We try to expand it. But you know, the first two big categories, and most of your users will know this, is like entertainment and fitness, right? Huge number of offerings. A lot of people have had exposure to these, and these can be you know stuff to go outside and go surfing on, or or sit on your couch and watch Netflix, right? It expands a huge gamut. And then this, the category that's gotten a lot of attention recently is health and mindfulness. So a lot of people have been focused on, hey, maybe I just don't worry about my physical fitness, but my mental fitness. Another category we're spending a ton of time in is prosumer. And so the definition of prosumer is this is a, a tool that is designed for a single user or two or three users to make money, right? So think a solution for someone who is a yoga studio, right? It's a one-person organization. They're using Vimeo to create marketing content. It's a single service offering targeted to someone who's using that to make money. And so that's, it's a very sticky profile. It's a pretty interesting business model. And then we've got everything else from like education, family and dating, and then this huge other category, which we're even expanding even further, right? Other now has like plant focus, religion, even uh, astrology. So there's a ton of categories in that other bucket. That prosumer category is very interesting. So you think about it like this is somebody who has a very direct relationship with their customer, right? So that stickiness yep. there is it's probably pretty obvious on one hand as to why that is. But why is that interesting now from an investment perspective? Because you would think the numbers here are so small. Why does this even matter? Yeah, but that's exactly incorrect, right? The numbers are actually quite big. So like, if you think about Grammarly, right? I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with Grammarly, right? Yeah, billion dollar yeah company. sure, I use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, billion dollar company, right? Every, I have you know, employees in nine different countries here in GP Bullhound. Almost everyone outside of the US uses Grammarly. It's an amazing tool to make sure your English is absolutely correct. And even if you're texting or using WhatsApp with a potential client, everything comes through perfectly clean, right? So no one's churning off that, right? Here in in San Francisco, Superhuman is an email tool. People love that. It saves them hours a week. They're never churning, right? There's a company called Small PDF. It's a similar similar version to Adobe PDF. That's it's sticky, sticky product that people, hey, I have to use and edit PDFs every day. Great solution, right? And you can kind of go on and down like GP Bullhound, we helped uh, Real VNC, which is a which is a VNC provider, basically sell an incredibly sticky user base, right? Because they always care about making sure they have really high quality internet connection, but not worrying about any of the any of the privacy issues. Okay, so it's a VPN provider. Provider, yeah. So, what other segments do you see either emerging or are underserved and have some opportunity in them? I mean, I think everything has an opportunity. To be honest, like okay. GP Bullhound, we just did a, another mapping business. We we did the sale this week. Uh, really? It'll be announced in Q1 2023. Really exciting. We've also have another one closing in the nutrition space. So kind of targeting people that are looking to cut weight, but they want to do it in a community. And so in a long-term safe way. And that's been, that was a really successful process. 
what are some other insights that you know you guys have packed into this report that you want your users to get out of it? There are a couple of things we talked about a lot this time. The power community is one that we see a lot of people using. And there's there's actually tools now where you can effectively launch a community without a lot of coding. And I think that's that's a big one. So we're seeing a lot of users start to dive into that. We definitely talk about Web3. And we think that'll be an interesting use case. It's still super early, but you know, I think the the potential is huge. It's just getting it right. And there's a lot of lot of scams out there. And then I think the other one we talked about, which we're pretty excited for the next two or three years, is femtech. So a lot of apps, right, aren't targeted towards the, the female demographic in origin. But now there's some really big businesses that are coming up and they're working with like sensors and tools like Aura Ring, Fitbits, Apple Watches. So you're getting a lot of health information that comes off those physical devices. And they can go to these in these apps specifically targeted towards females that are seeing really good adoption and they're really popular. And so we think this is a pretty cool category that's pretty underserved by the overall investment community, but they're building some really big businesses in plain sight. That's probably a good example of you can take something like fitness that has been serving a very broad market and break it down a little bit, become specialized and actually kill it because you've kind of addressing a need that kind of everybody's been handling generically, right? Yeah, anything you take, you take off like pen and paper or spreadsheet and you put it into a digital app form usually has a pretty good success rate. So are there any other of your groups then that you think could be subdivided into some specialized categories like that? Honestly, I, I'm always amazed by what we see. We probably really? are very fortunate where we sit, where people reach out to us and show us different types of businesses all the time. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's amazing stuff being built right now around like just managing your life, right? I am really looking for that family management super app. And there's stuff out there that does, you know, your kids' sports teams like TeamSnap, right? Where they, they manage all your kids' sports, right? And there's stuff that I just have, I have a three-month-old daughter, right? So I have an app that I use to manage everything she eats and her health. So my wife and I are staying really coordinated, right? Even if we're not in the same room, I know when she ate last, I know how her, you know, her last bathroom break was. So we use that app religiously. But I'm really interested to get that super app that kind of manages my calendar, my wife can see that easily. Then we can have like the finances are all on there, the budgeting is in there. So that when she and I kind of sit down at the end of the month, like, hey, how was our month? Right. We pull this all up and it's all there, one single screen. So I keep looking for that one. So question there and inflation aside, but because the apps that come to market now are more specialized because you know the generic ones have kind of been covered, right? You know, a mail, a mail app or a calendar app or something like that. Now you're talking about a very specialized segment. Does it take more time and more capital to bring an app to market now than it used to? No, it's actually I think it's the inverse. If you're building an app five years ago, you know you had to build a lot of the tooling yourself. Um, the payment point. piece you had to integrate into, like it wasn't there wasn't easy tools. One of the things we we talk about in the app is we kind of call it the building blocks. And so we talk about like now there's tools to manage your subscription like Revenue Cat, where before you had to kind of do that on your own. So you had to build a subscription management oh. offering inside your app. Done. Integrate Revenue Cat, you're off and running, right? ChargeBee is another good player. There's marketing tools out there, right? So, hey, you had to go out and use a Facebook, kind of write your own Facebook ads. You can do that almost all automatically now, running through HubSpot or, or Asana or Active Campaign, and you're off and running. Messaging, Twilio, you're set up. You can text message any one of your users instantly, email them, get them on the phone if you need to. Payment processing, super simple. All that's integrated, single line of code. And then reporting analytics, all that stuff can be, you know, you can subscribe to that. Right. So there's this whole ecosystem has been built now, what you kind of call like the B2B to C space, where their B2B SaaS offerings now selling to the builders that are building the B2C apps. And so uh, now you have AWS up, right? So you're, you can quickly yeah. scale up an app 
within 30, 60 days. The hard part now, Nick, to your point, is getting screen time. Consumers have effectively, in my opinion, maxed out how much time they're spending in front of their phones, TV, or laptop. There is no more time out there. God, I hope not. I hope I don't have to spend any more time in front of my laptop. Right. And now you're competing not just against email and Facebook. Now you got TikTok on there. Now you got yeah. family videos and people are sending stuff over WhatsApp. So it's really hard to break through and become something that someone has to use once a week, every day, once a month on a vacation and get that screen time. So that's the hardest piece right now. And I guess that kind of points to why also advertising costs in general, paid search and things like that just keep going up and up and up, right? Because there's that limited number of screen time. And now there's more than ever competing to put that ad in front of you. Yeah, that's what I mean. One of the things we talked about in the prior report is just finding ways not outside the app to require customers organically, right? You know, using physical hardware, using community referrals, um, utilizing friends, so creating a marketplace around that, like Discord did a great job of saying, hey, we target the gamers first, and then they'll bring their friends. And so that was a really specific niche they went after, right? People are like, cool, gamers, they can text each other, use WhatsApp, but they're like, no, we'll do it better. And then that'll create a community. And now Discord monetizes through a subscription. And, and GP Bullhound actually is an investor in that. And they've done phenomenally well. So do you think that referral of friends and family and other users in a particular community is it almost table stakes that you have to be able to build that now? Because if you just go the blanket, hit all of these different channels with, with paid advertising, it, you're going to run out of cash, right? You know, depending on the app and what the app is used for, right? I think you most people, depending on the app, once again, very specific, will want friends, family, joining them in that app because it generally makes the experience better, it right? Now, now, if you're using sure. Bumble or Tinder, maybe you don't want your family in there, right? Maybe keep that a little bit separate. But most things, right, I think you'll want you want family and friends because it just makes it more engaging, right? Strava is a great example of that where the power of Strava is you see what your buddies did that weekend, where they ran, where they, where they did. All that's a, it's a very specific social network. Fishbrain is the same thing, right? You can post your photos on phishing on Fishbrain where you know, your friends and family don't want to see that on Facebook. But the six people that you, you know, are your fishing buddies, they want to see that on Fishbrain. That's a good point. We've touched on it a little bit, but what, from your perspective where you sit, you know, the impact of COVID and so much going online and now us trying to get back to something normal. You know, there's a lot of anecdotal commentary online about how far forward the pandemic pushed e-commerce and subscriptions because you kind of went online. What's your view of that? Is that true? Did we really get catapulted into the future? Or was that just a spike because out of necessity that now we're all just kind of catching up to? It depends on which type of subscription you're talking about, right? Like entertainment okay. absolutely had huge pull forwards, right? Like people were saying, hey, I've got free money right, that came in from the government. And so I'll spend it on a Disney Plus subscription before I would probably not do that. My weekends were killed. An extra subscription doesn't hurt me here, right? Because I'm not going out to the bars or the restaurants. No big deal. Absolutely pull forward. In some of the other categories though, right? Fitness, like certain tools you're using. Once something goes from analog to digital, it rarely goes back to analog. So in my view, like once you've moved on to one of these consumer subscription platforms, and it makes your life better. That is the key second half of that, of that sentence. And it makes your life better. You rarely go back to pen and paper or to a non-digital offering. Can you give us some examples of where that hasn't gone well? Like hasn't actually made your life better. And the one I'd love to talk about all the time is Apple Pay on the phone. Like mm -hmm. that didn't materially change my credit card experience. Yeah, in some ways it's different and in some ways more convenient. But for, you know, their adoption rates have been atrocious considering how long Apple Pay's kind of been out there. So do you have other examples of things like that where you're like, yeah, this didn't work as well as they thought it would? So I would challenge that a little bit, right? Because like sometimes I don't carry a wallet anymore. 
So for me, like Apple Pay was a was a huge win. I'm trying to think of other times where you know you saw a bunch of runups and then you saw stuff come down. Like you definitely saw some of that in like fitness, where people were like, you know, in the Peloton example, I'm not, not harping on them right yeah. to build an amazing product, right? They got overhyped a little bit, right? It's still like if you step back and look at it from like a 10-year view, right? A business was created from zero and it's worth a billion dollars plus, right? That's a win every way, shape or form, right? You can never mm-hmm. take that away from the entrepreneur. The problem is that the market went up and it got really valuable and now it came down. So it's going to be described yeah. as a failure in the media. It's not. It's an amazing business and revolutionized in-house biking, right? It made every other, every other competitor's product is better now. So like even that example, which people are going to point to, I don't actually think is fair because it's still a billion dollar company that was created out of nothing. So do you think in that example, Peloton overreacted when they kind of cleaned house and when everything kind of dropped and inserted the new CEO and did all of that? No, I mean, they're, they're kind of just like they are, their business got pulled forward, right? They scaled up mm-hmm. so quickly because the market was saying, go, 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 scale up, scale up, right? And they were rewarding every time they got higher revenue growth, right? The market pushed the stock up 10 times. So, I mean, they were responding to incentives that were coming from investors, which is what you should do, right? Like that's not a bad thing, but I think they got a little over eager right? They spent a ton of money and they had some production problems, right? Like it is what it is, right? Sometimes you get stuff stuck on ships and then people started going back outside and as like all home fitness equipment, if it's not used every week, it generally starts to get pushed into the corner. Then it goes into a closet and then maybe ends up in a garage and things get tougher. But if, if you look at their subscription business, it's actually still quite strong. So like once they kind of fix the manufacturing piece, like this thing will cash flow quite well. Well, I've talked to a bunch of different fitness companies lately and the statistic I kept hearing was that a third of gyms and fitness centers didn't make it, you know, out of the pandemic that they shut down. And all of them, of course, experienced some some decline there for a little while. But now you've got this, all of those customers of those fitness centers are now not all of them, but a lot of them are coming around and now mm-hmm. creating a, not not a new market, but additional market share opportunities for them. So to your point, it kind of evens out over time, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think a lot of people will have a gym subscription and like you can honestly get really cheap options to some of these digital subscriptions from your healthcare provider, right? A lot of like right. Kaiser offers Calm, Headspace, ClassPass, mm-hmm. right? As a, as a healthcare provider, because they think if I'm healthier, they spend 20 bucks on my health, right? Maybe it'll save me a major operation, you know, five years down the road. So I, I think there are people, a lot of those businesses are finding second lives as going from B to, now they're going B2B as well. So it's a pretty interesting, like you can see Headspace doing that with the merger with Ginger. Any other like high level insights about where all of this is going, Eric, that you want to share with the listeners? No, I mean, we're we're super bullish on the space, right? We really like the innovation that's happening. We will tell every entrepreneur, it's really hard. Some of these apps will, you know, will not have a successful exit. It's just really hard to to get a successful exit as an app, right? Because you have to, you're competing in a very crowded space. But, you know, the time is showing like, hey, if you're building a really good business, there will be a buyer. Um, and we're even seeing like app conglomerates start to come up where they're they're buying five, six, 20 apps, right? And they're optimizing the sales and marketing spend, they're cutting down costs, and they're they're running these things for cash. And they're becoming pretty successful, millions in profit. For your subscribers, we always like talking to entrepreneurs. Um, if we didn't include your company in our report, reach out. We're happy to add it in there. We always like to update the landscapes. And then if people have questions, don't hesitate to reach out. Awesome. Well, if there are entrepreneurs listening who want to, you know, learn more, download the report, or maybe ask some questions about what we talked about today, where's the best place for them to go? It's just my email is eric.crowley at gpbohan.com. You can shoot a note on our website. We're easily there. Find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, you know, pretty much anywhere except MySpace these days. Perfect. 
Eric, thanks so much. I mean, you have a very unique perspective on the market looking at it from the macro level like that. And clearly you're getting down in the weeds because of all of the extensive information in the report. So thanks for putting that together and thanks for uh, sharing some insights today. Awesome. Anytime. Thanks, Eric. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.